Maestro. I guess I, you guys don't have a pre-talk chant that you do, right? No. But you can lead us in one. I'd be happy to follow you if you wanted to start and we'll r- respond or follow you. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> if you like, repeat after me. And unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma. Penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Thank you very much. Um, as somebody uh, once said to me, that that was, uh, it was a very presumptuous chant. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I tried to clarify for the person that's like, I'm not, it's like, I'm not the Tathagata telling you the truth, but I am trying to talk about the Tathagata's teaching. And that's the uh, truth that we vow to taste. Um, uh, no matter how rare it may be, so our uh, retreat is, uh, is called Mindfulness and uh, Metta, True Liberation. So um, uh, when uh, Arena asked me to give a talk, I, I, started, I had to think about whether I really knew anything about <laughs> mindfulness <laughs> or metta. And I, you know, I kind of don't really. Um, uh, I, I spent some time in school studying, you know, the, the Buddha word. So I know some of the stuff that he or, or she or they said, but um, uh, they remain kind of uh, mysterious and uh, almost bottomless topics. Um, so as, as you probably know, um, Metta is a Pali word and related to the Sanskrit root mitra, which means to be friendly. So uh, metta is how Pali speakers would say the the word in Sanskrit, which is maitri, which means friendliness, to be a friend, uh, to be well disposed towards others. And... um, uh, mindfulness, uh, Pali speakers say sati, and uh, uh, Sanskrit speakers say smrti. Uh, and the root, smr means to remember, literally. 
So the verb smarati in Sanskrit means he or she remembers. Um, and so uh, it's obviously, um, it's quite uh, closely related to uh, the concept in Western spirituality of recollection, which is very, very similar. So I think this is one of those themes that we find across spiritual traditions where our, uh, we're, we learn that our headlong rush through life, uh, our restless, ceaseless effort to grab the brass ring uh, uh, can be um, interrupted by remembering. And in fact, not necessarily remembering something, just remembering. So in uh, Western spirituality, uh, when I was uh, growing up, we had these days of recollection, and we were given uh, themes and so forth to think about, edifying topics. But really, it was about uh, uh, kind of remembering who we are as humans, remembering our situation, our, our shared um, uh, burden and challenge and joy of being human together. And of course, in the Christian context, that is against the backdrop of the, the, uh, the salvation story. Uh, and then in uh, Buddhism, of course, sati or mindfulness pops up all over the place. And in East Asian Buddhism, which I'm most familiar with, you see it all over the place. Um, there's, uh, as you may know, a famous uh, practice uh, in East Asian Buddhism of uh, reciting the name of Amitabha, Buddha, or Amida in Japanese, um, whose vow, as you may know, I made this very, very famous vow, which appears in um, uh, uh, Mahayana Sutras, to create a land, a pure land, where there are absolutely no impediments to hearing and practicing and realizing the Buddha word. So this is Amida's great vow, and in, in uh, the Kamakura period in, in Japan, when things were really were pretty rotten, they were even worse than they are in the United States now. They were really, really bad. And people were saying, uh, the Dharma has so far decayed that, that we, we can't really practice effectively so let's instead call upon the name of uh, Amida Buddha and ask to be born in this realm that he or she created where there are no impediments to Dharma at all. And uh, some of the sutras go to great length to describe the uh, beauty, uh, the peace, uh, uh, gorgeous uh, trees and flowers and wonderful perfumes, not the kind that bother you, but really nice perfumes, little bells tinkling and music, and always the sound of Dharma being spoken somewhere and going right to the heart uh, and, and uh, coming forth in realized practice. So, uh, and that practice of remembering um, uh, uh, to call upon Amida Buddha is nenbutsu, and the nen, character nen, means to remember. There's also, um, in the monastery, uh, 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 during the training periods, um, 
every fifth day is a day of a reduced schedule uh, where you, you actually have time to do your laundry and take naps and stuff. And uh, the day before, there's a special ceremony uh, that's called ninju in Japanese. And the nin, again, means remembering or remembrance. And ju means chanting. So uh, it's uh, a special ceremony where we get together and everybody uh, kind of uh, parades around the, uh, the meditation hall, uh, bent over with their hands in anjali or gasho. And we also do these little uh, chants which inspire us to remember something about our situation, to, to have sati or smriti or recollection. Um, and just to pad out the time, since I don't have that much to say, I thought I'd uh, see if I can remember <laughs> that chant for you, because it's kind of cool. Let me see if I can remember it. Uh, oh, the one part I can't remember is uh, how many years ago Buddha passed into nirvana? It's like 20, anybody remember? 2,653 or something. So I'll just make up a number. <laughs> Carefully listen, everyone. 2,653 years ago, the great Tathagata entered nirvana. When this day is ended, your life also decreases. Like a fish in a puddle, what pleasure is there here? We are to practice constantly as if to save our heads from fire. Throughout Zenshinji, the Dharma safely resides, bringing all peace. Everyone in ten directions knows an increase in joy and growth in wisdom. Thankfully, we recite the ten names of Buddha. And then we recite Buddha's ten names, which I won't bother you with. So this is, uh, this is a, a kind of recollection uh, chanting, uh, a sati exercise. So these are, these are some of the uh, ways I'm acquainted with uh, mindfulness uh, to begin with. And um, this, this uh, notion of, of going through our life with a degree of recollectedness uh, is, uh, as you probably all, all of you already know, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, um, is extremely important. It's kind of subtle, but as our, uh, the founder of Zen Center, Suzuki used to say, there's, there are aspects of practice, even, he said, even, you know, awakening. Actually, he said, it only makes a little difference. But he said, that difference is extremely important. And the same is true of this recollection to, to pass through our life with some bit of each step we take taken in awareness rather than in just the headlong rush is actually rather subtle and, and makes a critical difference in our lives. And you've probably already seen that. Um, even those of you who are relatively new to practice, it often doesn't take much exposure to see that, oh, this makes a difference. This makes a difference. So in, in my tradition, the one I'm more familiar with, the Zen tradition, there are actually a lot of uh, kind of uh, physical props 
that inspire or encourage sati or recollectedness. So that most of the time, particularly when you're in the training hall, there's a particular way of doing everything, just about everything. Standing, walking, picking things up, putting things down, uh, cleaning. Um, and then the, the, uh, uh, the uh, meals are taken in cross-legged posture during training periods. And you have about this much space for your little set of bowls and utensils. And uh, they're wrapped up in this obsessive-compulsive way with claws and tied in this special knot. And really, all of this is meant to be an exercise, um, at times a rather tedious exercise, in sati, in recollection. So uh, from the time you come into the hall to the time you leave, there are little cues, like remember, remember your life. Remember that your hair's on fire. Uh, remember that you're a fish in a puddle. And remember that there's actually a secret joy there. There's actually a secret joy there. Um, all of the, uh, just about, I think almost all of the uh, deities, the uh, so-called yidam, the, the tutelary deities in Tibetan Buddhism, almost all of them have both a uh, kind of beatific appearance and also a horrific appearance. And they're the same deity. And the difference is when you behold that manifestation of, of the awakened mind from the perspective of the attached sentient being, they're horrifying. But that same being, when beheld from a place of non-attachment, is uh, beautiful and radiant and peaceful. So, and and that, that flip happens here in us. So we are um, uh, at some pains to create a safe space uh, for us all to be in, both as, as LGBT folks uh, who recognize that we have maybe some shared history of oppression, um, and also as sentient beings who are studying the fact that we don't quite exist the way we thought, which is kind of scary. It's a little bit scary. Uh, the, the vastness of the universe of which we are an intimate part is a little bit scary. So it's nice to create a space where a kind of safe recollection of that can happen. So we notice here, you know, it's a beautiful building and everything's kind of, you know, there's soft cushions and nice lights, you know. There aren't like um, uh, uh, devils running around with pitchforks prodding you, you know. We could try that, I guess, but probably, probably it wouldn't be so popular. So instead, we created a rather safe space for us to be in to study something that's a little bit scary, right? And um, one of the um, uh, balms for the spirit in the midst of this scary study, uh, which is fueled and supported by recollection or sati or mindfulness, is uh, what we call friendliness, uh, metta or maitri, loving kindness. Um, which, as it happens, is the, ironically, is the natural response um, of a being who has, how do I say, uh, has come to be acquainted with what Suzuki Roshi called that little difference. That little difference that, on some level, that is not conceptually grasped or manipulated, 
we sense that this being is open to the whole universe, not closed in on itself. Not at all. And that openness is a little scary. It's a little scary. However, that the heart that is uh, vibrating with that realization naturally gives rise to this this uh, benevolent disposition towards all other beings whom we all touch and are touched by in a way and on a level that we really can't grasp or make money out of sorry <laughs> so so um, it's kind you know it is kind of intimidating and um, uh, to create a space such as we have here now and we're in the process of, of creating where we can do that study intimidating though it is scary though it is in a way that we actually feel supported um, uh, to face the truth and allow the the kind of the blinding light and the 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 the, uh, the powerful sound of liberation to st- strike us in the very the very core of our being and actually kind of thrill with that instead of trying to run away this is a really big deal and we all you all of us are to be congratulated uh, this is a great great blessing and um, uh, as I say, one of the uh, results or benefits of that is that we are actually able to go forth in the world and encounter other beings and kind of feel like we know them. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, it's, it's, it's actually more tangible when you've actually practiced together with people. Even if you never, uh, even if you obey, obey the instructions and have not written notes to each other or talked to each other, you still might run into each other in downtown, where are we? Fairfax or something. And actually, there's like a recognition. I'm like, oh, there you are. And at some point, you realize that this recognition happens with everything, with all beings, anyone you meet, even though they'll probably turn away from you immediately as you turn your radiant heart at them. Most people go, ayee, you know, please. <laughs> I, have, I have work to do, don't bother me. But... Even, even then, on some level, they will feel like, oh, that was kind of cool. You know, and they'll look back over their shoulder, and then they'll keep walking. But this is actually one of the fruits of practice. And it can also be, as can recollection, be practiced uh, anytime by anyone. And Buddha, in fact, reminds us that, um, if I remember um, Arena's instruction in Metta Meditation, don't we start by saying, Shakyamuni Buddha taught that there is no being at any time in any universe who is undeserving of loving kindness. And this is a very, very powerful thought, uh, thought form. Um, very powerful. Uh, it's very powerful to embody that. And it's also not so easy. Now, I don't know about uh, you guys, but I'm, um, I think I'm what they call a hate type. I'm embarrassed to admit. And um, so you know there's the, this rather simple typology in Buddhism, the greed type, the hate type, and the confusion type. Well, unfortunately, I'm the hate type. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be kind of crabby and disapproving and uh, you know, 
get away from me, all of you people, and, and have that sort of tendency. So for me, um, uh, loving kindness is kind of challenging. And um, so I have a practice of taking a part of the metta sutta, which you probably all know, uh, sometimes called the uh, karaniya metta sutta, that is the metta, the, the friendliness, the loving kindness that is karaniya, which is to be done. Uh, and there's a piece of that that I recite very often. Um, do, does everybody know that? You guys use that? that? A lot of new people. It's pretty short. Maybe I'll just rattle it off for you. It's kind of, it's very pretty. Um, I don't exactly know where, I don't remember in which um, Agama it appears, but um, uh, it's, it's easy to be found online. And uh, it's um, uh, chanted in um, a slightly different form at the Zen Center. It's a very, very popular chant. Um, <clears throat> however, they made a, a couple of Mahayana adjustments to it, which I thought was, you know, I said, this is one of my, my only, my great triumph at Zen Center was I said, look, you cannot take a sutra, change it the way you want, and still call it a sutra, okay? So don't call it that. So finally, after a lot of argument, they, they gave up and said, all right, all right, we'll call it the metta meditation. Are you happy now? And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> this, however, is the metta sutta, in, of course, in translation. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing loving-kindness over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite good world, goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down. During all one's waking hours, let one cherish the thought that this way of living is the best in the world, abandoning vague discussion, having a clear view, freed from sense appetites, one who is made perfect will never again know rebirth in the cycle of the creation of suffering for ourselves or others. And the piece that I say to myself over and over is just this one little section, may all beings be happy, may they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. And I say that a lot because I'm a hate type. And, um, uh, uh, and that is a, um, a practice I recommend to you also. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm now uh, rambling, and um, to continue in that vein, I want to complain a little <laughs> bit about... Um, um, some, some of you may have heard the expression spiritual technology. Have you heard that expression? I, you know, I just, it gives me the creeps because 
I, I actually don't think there is any such thing. You know? Some people say that, oh, you know, that bunch over there, they have the definitive spiritual technology. And other people say, no, 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 they don't. Those guys do. And I, um, you know, I'm kind of old now. Um, and uh, I've been kind of looking, looking at the Dharma scene for, for many years. And um, I've seen no proof that there is such a thing as the definitive spiritual technology. Okay? Namely, you simply apply uh, this uh, technological approach and bingo, you're enlightened. It's like, I don't think it works that way. However, Shakyamuni Buddha did say, my impression is, um, something like, uh, there is spiritual technology, and guess what? You have it. You all have it. All living beings, weak or strong, etc., have it. You don't have to go and find it from someone else. It's in you right here, right now. So, um, uh, there are certain uh, technological approaches that one could use, if one wishes, and whether they make sense for you or not um, uh, is entirely up to you. Um, There is so much uh, wealth and richness in Dharma, whatever you need for guidance is there. And especially in California, you can find someone to help you with it. (laughs) Um, So there are a lot of um, uh, traditions uh, how you implement these Buddhist teachings, how you implement metta, how you implement sati, or mindfulness. Um, and, uh, and I know a lot of them are very uh, familiar to you already. You know about the, the so-called um, uh, satipatthanas, or uh, in Sanskrit, the smriti upasthanas, the, the, the establishments of mindfulness. And I think you, you've talked about that a little bit already and we'll continue to do so. And uh, anybody know, anybody care to rattle them off? Maybe some of you newer folks. You get a gold star if you... Uh, The first one, anybody care for the first one? Yes, good. Speak. The body, right. Kaya Smriti Upasthana in Sanskrit. My Sanskrit's better than my Pali, sorry. Kaya Smriti Upasthana, which includes breathing. And as you've been experimenting with, there's an awful lot of um, technique that can be applied to breathing. Um, And uh, also uh, the arrangements of the limbs, uh, the posture, which there's a lot of emphasis on posture in, in my tradition. Uh, to find sort of the yogically optimal uh, uh, way to support our study of the self, our study of our our being. And then uh, the next one is is what? Feeling tones? Yes? Uh, That's actually three. So two is, is Vedana or sensation. And again, that's that's uh, translated different ways by different people, but uh, sometimes in the West, it gets mixed up with um, stuff like that we would call emotions, which doesn't particularly apply. Somebody said uh, feeling tones, which is a little more more to the point. Namely, 
any of our experience can be examined from the perspective of Vedana or sensation and determined to be either kind of nice or kind of not nice or kind of meh, nothing at all, right? Positive or negative or neutral, right? That's Vedana. And then the next one, I think you said thoughts, yeah? So uh, obviously, boy, there's a long row to hoe there. There's an awful lot going on in the thinking realm. And um, uh, one can examine uh, the thinking process, ideally from an established yogic base, you know, a stable, stable place, uh, whether you're standing, walking, sitting, or lying down, as Buddha says, doesn't matter so much. But from st- some stable place, examine the thought processes and uh, uh, become very familiar with the, uh, the way uh, uh, karma manifests in thinking and um, uh, uh, study our uh, unfolding life from that point of view. And then the fourth one, which is kind of weird, what's the fourth one, the fourth establishment of mindfulness? Dharmas. Dharmas, right? Dharmas. Now, dharmas are, what are they anyway? <laughs> hmm? Um, well, that's one meaning of dharma. This is another. This is small d dharma. Anybody venture to guess on that one? Well, kind of. They're sort of the, what one uh, tradition of Buddhist teaching regarded as the ultimate constituents of our experience. Right? So they're kind of like the, the atoms uh, in the Dharma world, the world of, of Buddhism. And I just happened to have brought a list. I used to know the list, but I don't anymore. And besides, there is a lot of disagreement as to what belongs on the list and what doesn't. Um, I liked the 75 Dharma list because it's shorter than the other one. Um, and it's like, well, I used to wonder, well, you guys, how come you, if you're so convinced this is how things are, how come you can't agree on how many of them there are or what they're called? It's like, well, you know, that's people for you. But anyway, there are a lot of um, kind of strange and and culturally peculiar choices. Some of it makes sense. For instance, um, uh, in the realm of form, we have eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, um, color, sound, smell, taste, touch, and so forth. That kind of makes sense. Now, uh, what do we mean when we call those, when we say that those are dharmas? Well, uh, to the mind uh, disciplined in meditative introspection, one is supposedly able to see these as each occupying an instant of manifestation in the whole panoply of a moment of existence. So this requires a very, very uh, disciplined um, uh, 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 view of phenomena as they arise and pass away. Um, I forget the the technical number, but in an ordinary moment of thought, there are actually what seventeen thousand something like that thought moments. You know, some uh, some, some number that uh, is, is is quite daunting. And uh, with a sufficient meditative resolution, one can act, one can actually see these dharmas arising and passing away. Um, uh, here are some that might seem a little strange. For instance. Uh, the minor defilements, well, that makes sense, kind of anger, um, um, concealment, that's a bad translation, uh, uh, parsimony, envy, injury, enmity, deceit, 
fraudulence, arrogance. Um, if you go through this list, you start to feel like there's something a little bit arbitrary about this. It's a little bit funny. And maybe this isn't exactly definitive. Maybe it's more like um, a way of describing how our experience looks to the meditative uh, inspection. So with the mindfulness or smriti or recollection thoroughly established, one can actually, um, as though one were expanding and expanding a photograph, one can actually get to the point where one sees the pixels, the little dots that make up the, the grain of our overall experience. And if you are of a cast of mind, as were some of our ancient Indian ancestors, to list everything, you can start giving them names. And then you come up with stuff like this. Um, so, so those are the uh, establishments of mindfulness. And um, there, are, uh, um, there are quite a few other technical treatments, um, such as uh, that, um, uh, uh, that a gentleman in China in the 6th century named Zhiyi, who's a very, very smart guy, uh, who with his fellow Buddhists was faced with a rather difficult situation. Um, China had been on the receiving end of a tremendous number of uh, texts and traditions uh, from India by way of Central Asia. And, uh, of course, this was, um, this was uh, more than a thousand years after Buddha's time. And things had gotten very kind of mixed up. And uh, so what they were receiving all purported to be the Buddha word, but actually stemmed from different eras and traditions. And some of it appeared to be directly contradictory to other stuff. So the Chinese were kind of bewildered by this. And um, this, this chap, Juri, sat down and said, well, look, this has to be the Buddha word. There must be a way of figuring this out and, and making sense of it all. So he set up a very, very clever system whereby all of the teachings could be uh, ranked and fit into one category or another. And then at the very top, uh, according to him, was the Lotus Sutra, which, as you know, is not part of the, uh, the Southeast Asian tradition. But he said, this is obviously the teaching that Buddha delivered uh, to his most uh, gifted and enlightened disciples. And then the other teachings were for uh, disciples who uh, couldn't manage, who couldn't, uh, couldn't abide the radiance of freedom and liberation from the Lotus Sutra. So they had to settle for something else. So among the, um, the um, many teachings, uh, there are some that I'm sure will sound very familiar to you. He came up with, for instance, on, in the, the, um, the sati realm, the, the realm of recollection, um, he uh, came up with what he called the six subtle dharma gates. And I think this will sound very familiar to you. Um, the first three have to do with breathing. Right? There's counting, duh, you all know about that one. Right? There's following, which you also know about. Then there's stabilization, which you probably also kind of know about. Um, uh, and then just to go through the list, then the, uh, those three are followed by progressively more subtle ones. There's one called contemplation, one called turning, and one called purity. 
So this this uh, cultivation of, of uh, recollectedness starts with counting, breathing, right? and there are instructions about how to uh, experience each number as it comes up. And then there's uh, as that usually uh, um, as the practice develops, um, the consciousness becomes more subtle, and the so-called coarser practices become burdensome. So when counting uh, becomes burdensome because consciousness is already more subtle, counting is left aside and one only follows the breath as it travels in and out. And then at some point, the deliberate following even becomes too coarse. And this is a point of uh, what's called meditative stabilization, when the, the consciousness simply gently rides the breath as it arises and falls without any particular effort and can do this for an indefinite period of time. Um, at some point, however, the uh, meditator um, comes to the realization that this is uh, very, very, very nice and very, very stabilizing, but does not actually conduce necessarily to the knowledge necessary for liber- liberation. Right? So then, um, uh, one moves to this uh, Dharma gate known as contemplation, um, where uh, uh, continuing the, the, with this subtle consciousness resting upon the breath, one contemplates body, mind, and all phenomena, seeing them finally as lacking in inherent existence, that is, as being inherently empty. Um, and uh, this can go on indefinitely, uh, but it is a process of analysis and at some point, the meditator realizes that simply continuing to analyze is also not sufficient. Then that process can be set aside with this increasingly subtle consciousness. And one comes to the Dharma gate he calls uh, turning, where the consciousness that has been doing the analysis is actually turned to study itself. One studies consciousness itself, the mind itself. Um, And the result of of that, when that um, uh, comes to fruition, is that the mind contemplating itself realizes that it is ultimately unproduced. So it itself has no fixed nature. And at that point, one passes into the Dharma gate known as uh, uh, purity injury system, which is the mind simply resting objectlessly in its own nature, no exertion, inherent wisdom, basically. So this, this I think, probably sounds fairly familiar uh, based on other approaches to um, both the beginning and the fruition of recollection, or smriti. And all of these practices are um, um, can be the engine for bringing this loving-kindness into our active daily lives. When our own minds and hearts are actually freed up by practice from the accretion of habit, such that, as I say, we no longer sense that we are uh, um, isolated beings uh, rocketing through a, 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 a cold, uncaring universe, but actually all of us are suspended and supported by a a tremendous web of being, which 
even in the, the Zen world, they go so far as to say weird stuff like, um, you know, somebody asked Zen master so-and-so, you know, what is the Buddha mind? And master so-and-so said, tiles and pebbles. It's like, it even includes the so-called insentient. It's part of this great web of being. And the participation in that frees our own, our own heart, our own spiritual heart, to be able to recognize other beings, be able to recognize ourselves as um, uh, limitless, as abiding in a vast, fruitful emptiness where we meet all other beings. And this is a great, um, uh, this, is, this is significant freedom. This is true freedom. And uh, this is a way of talking about the work that we're doing here, the study that we're doing here for this week. Can I stop talking now? Yeah? Okay, I think I talked almost long enough. Oh, okay. Um, also, uh, I don't know, you guys maybe don't do this so much, but um, during, during our, our talks, in my tradition, people can ask questions. So is, it, is there time for a few questions or better not? Five minutes, okay. And you don't have to ask any questions, but feel free uh, if something occurs to you. Yes. So you said a little bit about chanting, and I've actually sat with some Zen, uh, Zen practice a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm, of course, the only one there who never knows the chant. Right. So, Can you start over? I just wondered if you could give us maybe a little bit more about why, you know, what the chanting part does and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which is quite different from our practice. Um, well, in, in Southeast Asia, there's quite a bit of chanting. I guess that isn't so much a part of what, what happens here, but the Southeast Asian monks in the Theravadan tradition do, do chant quite a bit. And um, it's really, it's vocal meditation. It harnesses the body-mind in a, in a different way. Um, uh, Buddha uh, clearly reminds us that practice is the practice of body, speech, and mind, just as karma is the karma of body, speech, and mind. And so to use the voice as an offering, of, as an a, um, instrument of offering, is basically what, what chanting is all about. And um, if you hear a really good chanter, I'm not so good, but I've heard some really great chanters, you can tell they're using their whole body, you know, and chanting very, very strongly. Uh, doesn't matter, male or female, um, both voices are male-female, anything in between. All those voices have, have great power. And to harness them uh, is another act of uh, mindfulness. So, um, especially when, when we chant, uh, sometimes people will, will kind of try to read what they're chanting, like Avalokiteshvara, uh, but, but actually we say, you know, don't, you're not chanting for meaning. You're, you're chanting to, to fill your body-mind with sound and let it out. Uh, so, so don't try to get information out of it. Try to make it a, a, a meditation with your voice. Um, and so that's basically what's behind it, as, as I see it. And uh, more generally, the, the chanting and, and prostrations and offerings and so forth uh, that we do in my tradition, I was taught are actually an expression of gratitude for the teaching that we receive from the Buddhas and ancestors. So that's kind of the underlying theme. Maybe we could all own together Ooh. as an expression of our gratitude and receiving the teaching. So, um, 
Do you have a mic? My mic. Because I can't mic. I, I can't. I'm just. I'm going to let the singers um, leak. I'll start, but I'll let the singers who can hold a, a, a note take over. Connecting with our gratitude and receiving the teachings, we sound. Oh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.